Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In 2008, Griel Marcus read from his Threepenny Review essay about the death of his father, who went down with the USS Hull in 1944, six months before Marcus was born. Marcus is a music journalist and cultural critic. His books include Mystery Train, Lipstick Traces, and Invisible Republic. I'm going to talk today about a doubled memory. It's a memory of an actual incident, but inside that memory is another memory, a false memory. I was 10 in 1955. My family had just moved into a new house in Menlo Park, California. There was a big radio set up, and I'd play with it at night, trying to pull in the drifting signals from stations across the country, from Salt Lake City and Cincinnati and even once or twice New Jersey. And one night, a few lines came out. When American GIs left Korea, the radio said, they also left behind countless fatherless babies. And once everybody talked about this, now nobody cares. And those words bothered me at the time, but I put them out of my mind, or so I thought. For the next 20 years, that incident would reappear, crashing into whatever I was thinking, like an invisible meteorite. As I got older, I realized it was an echo of something other than what the words from the radio actually described. I knew it was an echo of absent memory of my own father, whose name was Greel Gersley, who was lost in a typhoon in the Pacific when his destroyer went down. Those were all the facts of the event present in my head at that time. No date, no details, no story. I was born Greel Gersley, but when those words came out of the radio, I wasn't Greel Gersley anymore. And though those words made me an echo chamber, for the memory they called up, I had nothing to remember. 
the memory that was called up was blank. Still, we all have memories of things we didn't experience, cultural memories that have taken up residence in our minds, and built houses, and filled them with furniture and appliances, and commanded that we live in them. Those sorts of memories come from all sources, but especially from movies. And so today, before I come back to the blank memory I started with, I'm going to talk about David Lynch's Blue Velvet. The famous opening of this 1986 picture seems to parody the American fantasy of home, peace, pleasure, and quiet. And that is the all but trademarked American dream. But what's most interesting about what's happening on the screen is that it may have no satiric meaning at all. The title sequence has shown a blue velvet curtain slightly swaying from some silent breeze, casting back to the black and white velvet or satin backgrounds that provided a gloss for the title sequences of 40s B pictures. The opening theme music for Blue Velvet is ominous, alluring, at first suggesting Hitchcock's vertigo, and then a quiet setting where predictability has replaced suspense, and then horns cutting off all hints of a happy ending. Bobby Vinton sings Blue Velvet, his soupy number one hit from 1963. But with the sound hovering over slats of a white picket fence with red roses at their feet, the song no longer sounds soupy, or for that matter, 23 years in the past. It sounds clean and timeless, just as the white of the fence and the red of the roses are so vivid you can barely see the objects for their colors. For an instant, the viewer is both visually and morally blinded by the intensity of the familiar, and all defenses are stripped away. In slow motion, a fireman on a fire engine moving down a well-kept middle-class street waves at you, a warm smile on his moon face. Another picket fence, now with blazing yellow tulips, and children cross the street in an orderly manner as a middle-aged crossing guard holds up her stop sign. There's a house with a white picket fence and a middle-aged man watering the lawn. And inside the house, two middle-aged women sit on a sofa, and there's a perio doll on the lamp behind them. They're drinking coffee and watching an old-fashioned TV set, a small screen set in a blonde wooden box with legs, a set from the 50s when a television was sold as a piece of furniture, in this case, an object reflecting values of taste and modesty. The box looks Swedish modern and also simple enough that the man in the yard might have made it himself. Outside, the man watering the lawn seems to sway with Bobby Vinton, and the camera shows the faucet where the garden hose is attached, leaking spray. And the hose catches on a branch, and the sound of water coming from the hose and the faucet rises to a rumble that seems to be coming out of the ground. And every predictable act is about to explode from the pressure it's meant to hide. The man clutches his neck and he falls to the ground. He drops the hose. A dog rushes up and planting its forefeet on the prone man, drinks from the spray. The rumble grows stronger, and the camera goes down to the ground beneath the grass to reveal a charnel house, the secret world where armies of hideous beetles, symbols of human depravity, of men and women, of creatures of absolute appetite, banishing all conscience, appear to rise up and march out of the ground to take over the world like the ants and them. 
And then the hero finds an ear in a field and the detective story that will take up the rest of the movie begins. But it's the pastoral that stays in the mind, not the nightmare bugs and the things are not as they seem. Lynch's picture of things as they ought to be is elegant. It feels whole, not like cheap. And for the moment, it feels like a step out of the theater and into an idea of real life. Watching it again, you can see that the slightly stiff nature of Lynch's framing, the timing of the firemen, the children, the crossing guard, the two bright images of fences and flowers are not a matter of making the familiar strange, but of getting at how familiar the familiar actually is. These shots don't play like a dream, and they don't play like the beginning of an exciting new story. They play like memory, and they stay in the mind like a common memory, layering itself over whatever personal memories a person watching might bring to the images. Because what the sequence seems to be showing the viewer is proof that the notion of personal memory is false. The details of the sequence could perhaps be excavated to match specific details of Lynch's own boyhood. But what's striking about these quiet, burningly intense images is that nothing in them is specific to anyone. They're specific. They're overwhelmingly specific, only as images of the United States. Now, anyone's memory is composed of both personal and common memories, and they're not separable. Memories of incidents that seem to have actually happened once in a particular time to you are colored, shaped, even determined, which is to say fixed in your memory by affinities your personal memories have to common memories. Common memories as they're presented in textbooks, television programs, comic strips, movies, slang, clothes, all the rituals of everyday life as they're performed in one country as opposed to the way they're performed somewhere else. The images that open Blue Velvet are images of things anyone watching a movie made in the USA can be presumed to have seen before and to have remembered as if he or she waved back at the fireman or picked up the hose, as if whatever it is that makes the image significant was determined by the person remembering it and nobody else. But that isn't true, and you can take it farther. If personal memory is false, what happens when you try to construct a memory of something that, in fact, you do not remember, but should, that you desperately want to remember? I think I always knew that the words about the Korean orphans left behind and forgotten in the United States lay behind what I ended up doing with my life, rewriting the past, pursuing an obsession with secret histories, with stories untold, with what to me were deep fraternal connections between people who never met. Such people as the Dadaist Richard Holzenbeck in Zurich in 1916, the revolutionary theorist E. de Boer in Paris in 1954, or the punk, the punk singer Johnny Rotten in London in 1976. But I didn't pursue the secret history, the unremembered history, lay behind the words on the radio. One can, of course, remember what one has not experienced. Older people tell children, this is what it was like. This is what he was like. How he laughed, how he walked, the team he rooted for. You absorb that. 
you meet someone who in fact you will never meet. And so that person, never present, becomes part of your memory. But in my case, none of that was true. I was born six months and a day after my father was killed in the Second World War. I know that now, but growing up, I never had a date to work with. My mother is from San Francisco, real Gersley in 1944 at 24, second in command on a destroyer named the Hull was from Philadelphia. They hadn't known each other long when they married in San Francisco in September of 1944. My mother went with my father to Seattle where the Hull shipped out. I was left with a name which became for me a talisman and a mystery. In 1948, my mother remarried to Gerald Marcus. He adopted me, and my name was changed. I don't remember myself as Greel Gersley, but Greel was an unescapable name. I always had to explain it, but I really had nothing to tell. The story of the Hull was not told in my family. There were no pictures of my father, Greel Gersley, in my house. When I visited my Philadelphia family, there were pictures, but I felt furtive unfaithful, criminal when I looked at them, and no one, no one ever offered me a picture of my own to keep. There were memories. I was visiting my father's older sister and his older brother. There was even a professionally shot home movie showing my father in his dress Navy uniform in the way he looked in the casual commanding way he leaned back in a chair, so much a match now for John F. Kennedy that the footage is hard to look at but none of that was ever shown to me. It must have been that to tell the story of who my father was, what he had done, what happened to him, and to so many others would be too much for a small boy to take in, or that to tell me such things would be somehow a breach of faith with my new father or with my mother in her new life. And this situation never changed. When I grew older, the habit of not speaking about the past became a kind of prison. I didn't know how to break out of it. I didn't ask, and nobody told. Like many children, I sometimes fantasized that I was not the child of my parents, but in my case, it was at least half true, or more than half true. Though I always knew I had a different father than my brothers and sister, my mother might never have lived the life I came from. When at first I asked about my father, she would say she didn't remember. Their time together was so short, she said. The letters he wrote to her from the hall, he was in charge of censoring mail, which is to say he could write what he, what he pleased. All those letters were thrown out. He might have told her that one night, preparing a navigation chart, he renamed a star for her. If he did tell her that, she never told me. My mother gave her wedding book to her mother, and when, sometime in the late 50s, my grandmother took it out and paged through it with me, she told me never to tell my mother that she had showed it to me. So in times of childhood or teenage unhappiness, the fantasy that I might have lived a different life and been a different person with a different name was more fact than fantasy. If my father had lived, both my mother and I would have lived very different lives but it was the kind of fact that, that when you try to hold on to it, slips through your fingers like water. So I developed 
my obsession with the past. I use the cultivated mystery of my own past as a spur to reconstructing events, both as they happened and as they hadn't, as they might have happened. I became a writer, and this is the route I've always traveled, whether I was writing about Elvis or Bill Clinton, Bob Dylan or Huey Long, John Wayne or Frank Sinatra in The Manchurian Candidate. I never expected my untold story to actually appear as real life, to challenge as real life the fantasy that had always been the foundation of my work. But the story did appear. A few years ago, my father, my second father, called to say there was a documentary on the hull on the Weather Channel. I watched it alone. When my wife came home, I said, I just saw my father die. He wasn't in the film. Rather, survivors of the hull spoke over stock footage and still photos of the typhoon that destroyed over 800 men from their ship and the two more that went down in the same storm. You saw their Navy photos as they were in 1944, and you saw them now smiling, laughing, sober, crying, speaking of the countless men who made it into the open sea with life jackets and who, when they were found, had nothing of themselves left below the waist. Countless men eaten alive by sharks. This year, last year, a writer named Bruce Henderson got in touch with me. He was looking for information about Greel Gersley for a book on the hall. He wanted to know if I was perhaps named for him by a friend, or was I a distant relative? Was there anything I could tell him? The story he told based on interviews he'd conducted with the survivors and people in the orbit of the ship was terrible. The hall had been at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, but it wasn't hit. Its captain then, the man who trained my father, who became the hull's executive officer, was respected and trusted. In Seattle, he was replaced by a martinet from Annapolis, a man so vain and incompetent, so impatient with advice from experienced sailors, and so sure of his own right way, that when the hull set sail for the South Pacific, 20 men went AWOL, certain that to ship with this man was a death sentence. With the typhoon looming, Admiral Halsey ordered the fleet to sail into it, to see, he said, what they were made of. With the ship trapped in a trough, with waves on each side 100 feet high, the captain determined to power the engines to full throttle and smash his way out. When his officers vainly tried to tell him that in a trough, you cut the engines and you wait. The captain panicked. He issued contradictory orders, rescinded them, issued them again. Other officers who survived to tell the story to Bruce Henderson begged my father, who was trusted as the captain was not, who was admired as the captain was reviled, to seize the ship, to place the captain under arrest, to take command, to save the ship. In other words, to lead a mutiny. There was no mutiny, but the Kane mutiny was inspired by what happened in this typhoon and by what might have happened. My father refused. In the history of the Navy, there had never been a mutiny, he said. He knew, he said, that if he took command, he'd be court-martialed. And if he didn't, he and everyone else would probably die. The ship was pitching at angles of 70 degrees. My father was thrown against machinery, breaking ribs, bones in his back, 
and the bones of one hand. Another sailor got a splint on his hand. The ship pitched over 90 degrees, and after that, the only direction it would go was down. With the ship flooding, my father was pulled from a hatch into the open sea. One survivor says, he said to a sailor who approached him, don't try to help me, I won't make it. Another remembers him asking for help and the men near him knowing he had no chance. As it happened, long after the war, when enough time had passed for those who'd been part of it to talk about it, the survivors of the hull began to hold reunions. This September, last September, in Las Vegas. They held what they determined would be their last reunion, and one of my daughters went. She looks like my father, as I don't. My mother, in a rare, unguarded moment, was the first to see it, and the people in Las Vegas saw it. So they told her stories, some of them as terrible as the one Bruce Henderson told, that when the original captain of the hull was told by one of the survivors that if he had been the captain of the ship, he would have never gone down. He shot himself. So now I know these facts, or I've heard second or third hand these stories. I have a story that I can tell. If it had been told to me when I was a child, I might have, in a deep and true sense, remembered it as if I'd been there when it happened, with at least the same instantly recallable immediacy with which I can summon up the exploits of Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth, who of course I never saw. But these facts severed from the family history that might have given them flesh are really no more mine than the images that opened Blue Velvet. I can make sense of them, or I can hold them in my mind, but only as scenes from movies the likes of The Cruel Sea or Victory at Sea, the documentaries, The World at War, Why We Fight, are from the movie that someday someone might make. Since the facts appeared, my wife and I and our daughters and our friends have been casting that movie. But if any such movie were ever made, the story that I have as a personal story would be even less mine than it is now. And the truth is that now it isn't mine at all. It's a contrivance. It's a story I might now remember, but don't. What might have been a personal story dissolves into the public domain of a much greater story, of the war, of heroism and stupidity, arrogance and decency, and hundreds of thousands of the dead. And in that sense, whatever personal memory might be found here, the common memory rightly takes it away. So, thank you. When I say that personal memory is false, I don't mean that it's untrue. I don't mean that it's a lie. It's as reliable as personal memories are, which is to say very reliable, not reliable at all, and everything in between. When I say that personal memory is false, I mean that as a memory, or as a phenomenon, or as a story, it's incomplete, and if it presents itself as whole, on a personal level, it's false in that manner. The memories that the survivors of the whole passed on to the makers of the documentary and to Bruce Henderson, the author of the book on the whole that's in fact coming out at the end of this month, it's called Down to the Sea. The memories that they have have significance and gain a lot of their 
reason for being memories at all, for being part of a much greater story. And the people who have kept these memories are aware of that. But in all cases, we're talking about people whose memories are not just simple memories that are present. And that if you said to them at any point in their lives, gee, what happened to you on the whole? They would just repeat. And these are memories that did not even begin to emerge, as is so typical with veterans of any war, until 20 years after the fact. For 20 years after the fact, these people did what so many people who've been in wars did. They said, I don't remember. You don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it right now. It was only much, much later that people were able to talk about these things at all. And that's partly because they began to make contact with each other and partly because their own personal activities had become historicized by that point. And they could completely see themselves as actors in a great drama and not just someone with their particular name from their particular place. So that's what I mean. It's a complicated situation. It's a talk that when I read it, I never know how I'm going to get through it and how it's going to affect me, and it always affects me differently because I wasn't prepared to learn any of this at an advanced age. Uh, but also because it pains me horribly that when these facts came to light or came into my own life, my mother was still alive, but her mind was gone, and there was no way to talk to her about any of this. And I don't know that I could have written this if she had been able to hear about it. I wrote it before she died, but she was gone long before she died. But if, if it has become a memory that I've passed on to you, and a story that you'll in some manner remember, maybe even relate to somebody else, it's because I have been able to make it into a story instead of confessional, if that makes sense. I'm wondering whether you have a sense of the extent to which films, but also literature, may function symbolically to replace things that were missing. I'm a single mother, and I remember once going by that little plaque to James Cagney with uh, um, that's 90, 91st Street. Um, with my son, who was then around five, and we had just seen the Yankee Drill Dead. He was a mother of James Cagney movie. He said, he's dead? And I said, yes. He said, I'm so sorry. I would so much have liked to have known him. And I remember feeling that there were some feelings there that just seemed especially resonant. As a five-year-old child looking at a movie is one thing, and you know, as an adult, it's something else. But do you think that's, I mean, your powerful connection to Blue Velvet, does that supply something missing? I, I don't know. You know, I think cultural representations, whether they're movies or probably for most people and most intensely movies, but depending on who the person is, literature, comic books, any sort of things, 
cannot just affect or shape personal memories, things we've actually experienced or heard about and incorporated as if we have experienced them. They can replace those things. They can really replace them so that a contingent, difficult event that part of you wants to shut out, wants to disremember, can be replaced and recast and even given a different happy ending than, than a real ending. But I think it's a very violent and uh, resistant phenomenon. The way what we want to happen, because of what we've seen can happen or should happen, can invade memories of what did happen. And you know, our memories of what did happen are incomplete because they're all part of stories. And even if a story goes to what we might consider a completion, that is to somebody's death, we always know it might have turned out differently. Yeah. I wonder if you know Freud's case study on Leonardo. There's this way in which questions about origins and about eternity he links to creativity, that mysteries about origins propel creativity and creative style. And I was wondering if in writing this for you, there's some question about the kind of writer one ends up becoming and, you know, the way that mysteries or enigmas propel particular kinds of stylistics. It's the question of how did I become the kind of writer that I became? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the main things I remember from Freud's study of Leonardo are his bird fixation. But what I really remember is when he goes through his analysis of how things from Leonardo's childhood, his bird fixation, all of that explains a lot of his work, why he did what he did. And then he said, and then we come up against the problem of genius. And he says, well, everybody knows genius is incomprehensible. So we'll leave that aside. In other words, he says, we can explain things up to a certain point but we cannot explain the greatness. We cannot explain the reach. We cannot explain why we're touched, transformed by this work. That's my favorite part of that book. In terms of making sense of one's own work or one's own writing, I always do. I always knew once I realized that my work was on a certain track, I always knew why. And it never bothered me. I figured if you have some sort of neurosis, the best thing is to use it as a source of energy, take advantage of it, not see it as necessarily a problem to be solved. In terms of style, I'm sure somebody else far better than I could could read what I write and say that's why he writes the way he does. But I'm not that interested in myself to want to look at that. Yeah. Just back to the question of memory being personal and public. One thing that strikes me about your story and that as, a, as an analyst I know patients is that memory is often located in the space between. That is, it issues in conversation. There may be memories that change, there may be memories that are enhanced, there may be memories that can emerge in the course of communication between two people, which means that the language in which the memory is always already with the cultural representation. So when the veterans 
begin, you said 20 years later, and there are many reasons why 20 years later memories of traumatic events come up, but it's also because you said it was historicized, made, their experience was historicized and given context, and, and they began to talk to each other. Yeah. Also, just to remark, Grill, that I think recent neurological studies have suggested strongly that memory operates by a series of reenactments of the last staged memory, if that makes any sense, that rather than always reverting back to a core experience that neurologically what we do is remember the last time we remembered something. So it's analogous to a theatrical troupe that has destroyed the original script and always only has a record of its last performance, including all the mistakes or improvisations, and then uses that script to put on the next show and then destroys that script and so forth. So, I mean, this just strikes me that you speak of this question of, you use the word replacement, which sounds quite aggressive in a sense. Uh, art, cultural artifacts or communal memories replace personal ones. Uh, of course, the susceptibility to this replacement is in, perhaps inherent in memories tendency to be always a replacement anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, just a remark. Well, I look forward to the novel based on that. <laughs> yeah. There was a wonderful essay that Anna Freud wrote not, not too long after the war called On Losing and Being Lost. And the suggestion in that essay was that lost memories, which I think is what you mean by absent memories, always have at bottom the meaning they didn't want me. They lost me. They, or as one little boy that she quotes said about his mother when they got to the park and he had gotten lost and he complained bitterly to her, you lost in me. There's an absence of a memory always signals that the child is identified with that memory and feels that they have been lost because they weren't wanted. I'm not sure. Uh... I can relate to that. Yeah, I mean that's what I that's what I heard you to be saying. Yeah. That you're feeling knowing that about the babies in Korea was that their fathers didn't want them. All right. They lost it. Well, and that there was a willful, common, shared forgetting. Yeah. And erasing. And also all those babies had in common that experience right. because there's a group that is always involved in the well, feeling of people. In fact, with the Hull, there were 13 Hull orphans. There were 13 people in exactly the same situation as me. Half of orphans? orphans. Excuse me? Half of orphans. Yeah, right. But you were afraid. Well, actually, no, actually, no, <laughs> actually, not half orphans. Legally, at least in California, when I was born, someone without a father was an orphan. Mm -hmm. Have you ever met with any of them? I haven't. My daughter has, but I haven't. I was just adding on to that. I was uh, two, two little remarks. One is the extent to which I'm talking of writers, particularly maybe consciously recreating or assuming the break between what they were and what they were young. 
and establishing a whole body of memory that they can live on. I'm thinking of, came to mind, thinking of Doris Lissy. I just saw a remark that she made about her own upbringing in Zimbabwe at the time and how she left home at a very early age and the resolution that she made, I will never be like my parents. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to have their values. I don't want to have their attitudes. And I was wondering, I mean, she's had such a rich and such a, a thoroughly explored life since then, to what extent this is a break between what I said before and to what extent she can live on what she created herself. Romain Gary comes to mind as a similar example in French literature. There's, there's a gap between where he came from or where he was at birth and a conscious attempt later on to, to compensate for that. But the second remark I wanted to make is really a question, and I think it's been raised in different ways here. As a writer, would you agree that if one shapes a memory that one has, or the absence of memory that one may have, once you've done that, whatever was behind that, whatever was the origin of that, can no longer be accessed the way it was before. In other words, that the shape, rendering of the memory, or translation, or creation of the memory, in literary terms, comes to stand in the place of what might have been before. I understand what you're saying, but I don't know how to answer it. I mean, I certainly don't know how to answer it for myself. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that, in any case, probably most people who are consciously involved in creative production have to come up against some it's probably the dichotomy between the shaping of what one does, consciousness, which includes memory, and the sources of that. Now, if you could go back to the shape if you want, probably doesn't matter. So this idea of the counter life, which of course is always the happier life, that you said you've formed in some unhappy times during adolescence, has that stayed with you, or is that something that you go back to? Well, a couple of things. I don't know that a counter life is a happier life. <laughs> the fantasy of another life is necessarily a happier life. Because, and I certainly remember this from my own childhood, that when you begin to fantasize the different life you might have led, and particularly if you actually have something to work with, which I had something to work with, and if you let that fantasy spin itself out for any length of time at all, problems begin to emerge. Difficulties begin to come into the story. And you may turn around and flee back to where you were before because this life is not going to unfold like any fairy tale you've ever been read. You, you don't see that happy ending over the next hill. So I don't know about that. Um, and I'm forgetting the second part of it. Well, just if the, the idea of the counter-life is something that has stayed with you, where you Well, I mean, to the degree that I said, I have, I've always been fascinated with writing about things that are implicit in events, or fascinated by the way ideas and thoughts and um, gestures are transmitted over time between people who are enormously disparate in terms of time, place, language, culture, and not meeting between real historical figures in the sort of 
doctoral ragtime manner, but meetings in a different manner. In other words, in my book, Lipstick Traces, which in some ways is about three figures. It's about Richard Holzenbeck, the Dadaist in Zurich in 1916, Guy Debord in Paris in the 50s and 60s, and Johnny Rotten in London in the 70s. None of these figures ever met each other. And there's no fantasies in my book where they all sit down and get drunk together and you know, talk about what might have been or something like that. It's much more interesting to me to find out how they might be speaking the same language and how that might have come to be, if it's true at all. It's a question of seeking out things that didn't happen, but in a less imaginative way than a more imaginative writer would render them, I guess. Yeah. Just as an additional thought on that, because it seems to me that what's lost or lost it, when you say it's an absent memory, it's not only your dad, the man you miss, but also the relationship that you might have had. Sure. And absolutely. that's what you're imagining in the cases of this photo. Yeah, as I'm older, I'm now in a position where there are only two people alive who I know in my family who knew my father. One is a second cousin who I haven't seen for 30 years. And the other is my 91-year-old Philadelphia aunt who has all of her marbles. But she's the last one. I'm very aware of that. Something will be different when she dies. Yeah, but of course it is. Of course it is. It's it's. Uh, um, but it's it's more selfish than that, or more egotistical. You know, I would have been different in some manner. I have no idea what that manner would have been. I'm not saying I I long for it. I don't know that I do. You know, I'm much better off having grown up in California than I would have having grown up in Philadelphia. I believe. <laughs> My boyhood in Menlo Park was completely pastoral, you know, in an area where there were no sidewalks and it was rural and it was a 50s paradise. But it reminded me actually of something else of when you were writing, maybe it was about the beats and uh, maybe it was some parody or something about some like par- cartoonish beatniks making fun of a businessman mm-hmm. and uh, and his like square businessman life being on some square businessman commuter train. And I remember you being like kind of a little irate at that because they were basically describing your adoptive father. And well, you're talking about, it was a Steve Martin routine on Saturday Night Live where he is a beat poet. You know, they have a scene in a beat cafe and Lorraine Newman is a waitress, black stockings. Oh, it's just so perfect. And Steve Martin comes on and he's the beat poet. It was one line and he caught 90% of all beat poetry. He comes out and he says, Mr. Commuter, not for me, your life of. That was it. (laughs) It's amazing. Well, listen, thank you all for coming. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. 
You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.